The following podcast is a part of the Spin Studio Network. Hey guys, and welcome back to Flourishing Fulfilled. In today's episode, I want to give you a big insight, I guess, not only into like the mindset and the why of competing in fitness competitions, but also explaining some of the common myths and the extreme highs and the not so glamorous parts of the fitness competition world, along with like my own journey, because it was a big one. Uh, Today, I want to share not only like my top secrets and tips, but also my biggest pieces of advice. And in today's episode, I want to give you the same knowledge that I would to my paying clients or my best friend, um, as well as like the information that I wish that I had been told myself. Um, And I think I'd like to start this by saying that every pro was once an amateur. So it took me seven years to turn pro and I'm opening up with this because I think that a lot of girls look at my photos and see where I'm at now and want to look like their favourite fitness competitor without having to do the work. Now, it rarely happens that it's going to literally turn your life around within 12 weeks. And then I think what happens after that is you see these photos of all these pros and it leaves you feeling defeated and down because you're not where they're at. And I kind of want to go back to the start and really explain to you all how hard it actually was. Um, Within the episode today, I'm going to cover so many different areas as well as like my own journey, my reasons for competing, because especially within my Flourish and Fulfilled um, course and business, my whole concept is to empower women. And it kind of goes against everything standing on stage competing against women. And I think I really want to break that down and help you guys understand why I did it and also my reasons behind it, Um, as well as topics like nutrition and training, choosing a federation, uh, a coach, what we do in peak week and the different myths around it why I have to tan so dark because I literally would not be able to leave the house with that tan. Even like the makeup um, element I'd love to cover. So there's so many different things within um, fitness competitions that today's episode will um, cover. And I know that today's episode may not be relevant or interesting to you, um, but I will just go and go through it all. Now, I first competed in 2012 and I wasn't um, I, I wasn't new to the stage. I had done bikini competitions before fitness competitions. And I think for me, doing bikini competitions was really easy because I didn't have to do a whole lot because it wasn't so much about symmetry or shape. It was simply getting on stage in um, a venue or an event and you won quite a bit of money and holidays and different things through that. And that was definitely my main motivation for doing those competitions, being a single mum with two kids. Um, I would win between $5,000 and $10,000 per comp which was a lot of money to me and I really needed it. So it was really easy for me within my modelling jobs to be able to go and do those style of competitions. I started training in the gym and 
I didn't really know what I was doing because I had never stepped foot in a gym until 2012. And I I couldn't really relate to why people went to the gym. I didn't enjoy the feeling of it. I didn't like that I was sweaty. I didn't actually like training at all. And there was a personal trainer that um, was working out of the gym that I signed up to. And he came up to me and he was like, look, there's this fitness competition in 12 weeks and I want to train you for free, but you have to get on stage at the end and represent me. And I was like, no, no deal. Absolutely not. And he was like, yes, like, just please do it. Anyway, he kept going at me for a few more weeks. And eventually I said yes to the weight training. And I said, but I'm not getting on stage. And I think he deep down knew that once I was feeling myself and I loved the way I looked, I'd get on stage. So he trained me for 12 weeks for free. And it was the week of the competition. And he was like, Soph, you have to compete. Like you have to just get on stage and do it. And I wore one of my um, bikini competition bikinis. So it wasn't the same sort of style of bikinis that we wear now. It was literally like it had padding in the bum. I, um, I'll definitely try and find these photos and link them in the show notes because it's quite funny. Um, but it had like red lycra. And I got on stage and to my surprise, I won that state show. And the following week, there was a different federation. And I did that competition as well and I won. And then what happened is I did five different federations within the first six weeks of competing and won every single federation. And I think that all of my self-doubt was kind of like, oh, it's rigged. Obviously, this guy has connections. It must be because of this judge or something's happened and I couldn't figure out what was happening. But by the end of the five competitions that I had won, I was kind of like, mm, maybe I should actually pursue this. So I went to nationals and that was kind of a really big deal for me because I had to pay to go to nationals. And I had to, I hadn't really traveled a whole lot because I had the boys and I had to get to Sydney and pay for my accommodation and it was quite hard. And every time I was competing, there was a lot of money involved with having to compete. Now, the difference between bikini competitions where I made a lot of money, which was my main motivation to be able to help my family versus the fitness competitions is there was no money at the end. So I was doing it for a plastic trophy and you have to actually pay entry fees and stuff. And so it was a, it was a lot of money and a lot of output with very little return. Um, so 2012 was the big year that I won a lot of competitions and I went on and won nationals. And at this stage, I the last um, federation that I decided to compete with was called IFBB. Now, IFBB in 2012 was essentially the, in my eyes, only federation that allowed you to go all the way through to Olympia and turn pro where you were recognised and it was worth it. There was a lot of other federations that were in Australia at the time, but you could essentially only go to national level and I had already won them. So when I went to New South Wales and did the national competition, um, I won my category and then I went into a pro um, qualifier division. That was my first pro qualifier division. And so I stood on stage with three other girls and I didn't win. And it was interesting because me not winning then sparked my fire of wanting to be able to win, even though there was nothing in it to actually go for. Um, at the time, it was Nina Silic that won, who has since become a beautiful friend. Um, 
but it was kind of like that was my first season of competing and I did very, very well. And it allowed me to get that fire in my belly to do it for myself. If she could do it, I could do it too. It was really eye-opening getting on stage because I had two kids as well and most people that I was competing against did not have any children. And I would just keep getting on stage back to back to back. I went overseas to Ohio and did the Arnold's four times. For anybody that's travelled, that is not cheap to be able to do. Um, And I just kept trying. So over the seven-year space, I literally – I think I competed 17 times in seven years um, and I then had the twins. And 12 months after having the twins is when I won the Arnold's Australia, so the national title 12 months after having twins – then went overseas to uh, like the Arnold Classic in American Ohio and was second in the world. And so for me, it was like, fuck, I just keep missing out. Like, what do I have to do? And I really want to point out here that it was really important to me to never cross my own integrity and my own boundaries of what I was willing to do within the industry, knowing that I didn't want to have to sacrifice certain things or do certain things that a lot of other women were doing in the industry that I wasn't willing to do. So I went overseas, came second in the world and was so stoked. Found out there was a New Zealand competition the week later and I was just burnt. I was so done. I had done three competitions by that stage um, within three weeks, one overseas in Ohio and had 12 month old twins at home and the boys and trying to run a business. And I was just like far out. Do I do it? Do I not do it? And I decided 24 hours beforehand to jump on a plane and go to New Zealand to do this other pro show, um, pro qualifier, sorry. So I went on, jumped on the plane and I was literally there for 48 hours, but thank God I did because that's the show I finally turned pro at. So every competition within IFBB are not necessarily pro qualifiers. Some of them are just state shows. And if you win the state show, that's great. And some of them are just nationals. And if you win the nationals, that's great. But they're not actually pro qualifiers. So up until this point, what had happened is there was only one pro qualifier and one pro card per year which is seven IFBB Pro Bikini Girls in seven years. So it's not very good odds given the amount of girls and hard work that was going into it. So when I went over to New Zealand, that was a pro qualifier. So my whole end goal and outcome was the pro card. So I went over to New Zealand and I turned pro and it was just that overwhelming sense of holy shit, I finally did it. Like, And I did it after having twins when they wouldn't give it to me before I had my twins. So I was just like stoked with myself and really, really, really proud. And I was, yeah, so happy. Now, what I was seeing the pattern was that because a lot of the girls were going so hard to get their pro cards, that they were ending up burning themselves out by the time they got to having their pro card. And then they were never jumping on stage. And I was like, you've worked so hard to get that pro card. Like, why aren't you using it? And so I I quickly, as soon as I turned pro, I was in condition and I was like, I don't want to wig myself out of my pro debut. And if they've given me my pro card, I'm obviously the right size, shape, symmetry right now to go and compete in a pro lineup. And 
I looked online and the next show was one week later in Pittsburgh. And this is like, I had to fly Brisbane to LA, LA to Dallas, Dallas to Pittsburgh, which is huge. And I had just done three competitions back to, uh, four competitions. I did Fiji as well, which was another pro qualifier. Um, So four competitions back to back and flying everywhere to try and do this. So much money going into it every single competition. And I was like, no, I'm going to do it. So I went to Pittsburgh and competed in my first pro show. And I think that was a real eye opener for me in regards to the industry itself, but also like what you would have to do to do well and my intentions behind doing it. So I think that's kind of probably a really good opener to why and your reasoning to competing. So what is driving you to reach an elite level to compete in, say, this particular sport? Now, if it's something that is simply to win, um, I definitely do not advise doing uh, fitness competitions because it is so, um, it is never judged based on, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's not a race. It's not like a running race where whoever goes over the line at that point is the winner. The judge could simply like blondes versus brunettes and you have literally spent 20 weeks and over $10,000 to get on that stage for the judge to prefer a blonde over a brunette. So really make sure that your reasoning behind wanting to do fitness competitions is 100% internal. So it's really, really, really important here that you're okay with the outcome no matter what happens and that you're not going to be resentful towards, say, competing if you don't win. I do want to make another point here is that in every single competition I did except one, I placed top three and that competition that I didn't was my favourite competition to date. And I think that I built it up so much in my head of what would happen if I didn't place that when I didn't place, it was such a beautiful position to be in because I was not only okay, but I was so happy with how I looked, how I presented on stage. I had my kids front row and I was so happy to be on that stage. And that's probably my proudest competition to date. The other thing is be okay with the banter that comes after the placing because everybody has a different view of who should have won and it's never going to be fairly judged. It's very controversial and it's definitely like if you win, someone is going to try and pull you down and tell you that you didn't deserve it. And I don't think I've ever been to a competition where it hasn't happened and that whoever wins or whoever places, it's it's because of this, because of that, whatever. It's 100% um, on the day whatever they're looking for. And it changes all the time. And I think that's why it took me so long to be able to actually get my pro card. Because when I first started out, it was definitely those little petite natural looking girls that were winning. And then we saw a massive increase of the big, big muscly girls that were winning who didn't have lower body fat, but were really big. So a lot of the girls that I was competing with actually turned to using substances and got really big, which is what they were looking for. And in doing so, screwed their bodies over 
And then the next year they changed what they were looking for to go back to more that natural little Alina look. So you can never go according to what they're looking for. You can only ever go into it with how you want to look. And remember, it's not just about one day a year. So if you look good on one day a year but look like shit for the rest of the 365 days – How are you going to be happy doing that? So making sure that it's always coming from a place of you being happy on stage and happy with how you look, not only for what their judgment criteria is, but how you want to look for the whole year um, going around. The other thing is, do you have the right support network? So competing is a very individual like sport. It's you on stage and there's no one else up there which can be really good, but it can also literally split your family up. And if your wife perhaps doesn't want you to compete and you're a bodybuilder, if you're a fitness um, competitor and your husband's like, no, and he's really anti it, it's going to be very, very hard and very expensive. So if you don't have the funds to do it correctly, um, you need to really dig deep and ask yourself what your why is. And if it's simply that you want to lose weight or give yourself a goal, there are so many other goals out there that you can choose that's not necessarily as harsh or as expensive or um, that's not not fitness competition. So really be in, um, really go deep and really understand what your why is and your reason to it and going in it with having no expectations and mentally preparing yourself that you're not going to win um, as well as being able to spend the time to reverse diet back out. Um, the amount of times that I have seen girls – diet down for a competition and put on 10 to 15 kilos within the following two weeks and just ruin their hormones and their bodies, um, then it's probably not for you. Um, However, if you do have that time and patience and you're definitely doing it for an internal goal, then grab your bikinis and heels and let's go. The other thing that's really important, probably the most important part is a coach. And A lot of girls don't have a good coach or a coach at all because they're they're worried about the cost involved of having a coach. However, you can't do it without a reputable coach. Now, I say can't because I've seen it time and time and time again is that you're researching online or following what other girls are doing or perhaps your favourite influencer is competing and she's posting what she's doing. It's not something that you can literally just copy and paste or cookie cut. It has to be so individual and unique to you and your body. Um, And it's really, really, really important. And there's such a science to it. I've had a bunch of different coaches in my time. So the guy that I told you that first approached me in the gym, Gabe, um, he gave me the 12 weeks training program and he was really good to me to be able to get me to that first competition. And I then changed over to another coach that was a female. And I just had the most awful experience because she accidentally post-competition of my first season, I did exactly what I had mentioned before and I had blown out. And I didn't know what was happening to me. And for the first time in my life, I was 
eating less and less food and I was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And my face was so puffy and I couldn't for the life. I was so embarrassed. I didn't want to leave the house. I didn't know what to do. And because I'd been dieting and training for so long, I had such a limited social life that I wanted to go out. And on this one night, I was going out for dinner with my girlfriends and there was three of us in the photo and I posted it on Instagram and she screenshotted the photo and sent it back in the group chat by accident, laughing at how fat I had gotten. And for me, that was such a massive hit because the person that was supposed to be my support and teach me and educate me was laughing at me behind my back. Um, And then I've had other coaches that have wanted to put me on illegal substances. Now, I'm assuming here that most people that follow me um, will have seen my body um, on Instagram. I am very small and I literally have been weight training since 2012, so nine years. And I struggled to gain muscle at the best of times. And so the big thing in regards to me is that so many people have tried to sway me into doing like illegal substances to make it easier. And I'm not being biased with this, but if it wasn't for Nathan, I don't think I would have chosen the same path that I did choose when it came to coaching and competing. And I think the reason for that is Nathan always wanted to have his own kids. And when he first started coaching me, that was obviously his secret end goal. So he never wanted to stuff up my hormones or never wanted my body to be out of whack or out of balance. And for those that do know Nathan, he is the most natural person out there. So he won't even use like toothpaste. He doesn't use anything at all. Doesn't use, he uses vinegar to clean. The girls aren't allowed to use hairspray, like very, very natural. Um, And so that's actually worked in my favor now in hindsight, because him as my coach was also my husband. So he could push my body to a limit that I knew he was doing with my absolute best intentions at heart because he was my husband. Um, And I know obviously not everybody has that um, benefit of having their husband as their coach, but I've seen him do it with other coach clients as well. And he does it with every single one of his clients. And there's so many other girls that have been through him that are very similar to me. And I know like Jess Green's another one that's one of his clients that he's had for years. Uh, And she's very similar. She started with him um, in not such a great place and has now been able to get to a really good position. So if you find a good coach, don't listen to other coaches because what tends to happen is they've paid for a coach and then there's 10 other people that are perhaps, perhaps you're a young girl and you're in the gym and there's like three other dudes that are circle, circling you and they're trying to give you all your advice and feedback and you start listening. And so if you start listening to one other person who says, no, 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 that's not what you should be doing. Not only does that then plant doubt in your mind, but it also probably works for their clients when they're sticking to whatever they're doing and you, he doesn't know all of your diet history, um, what nutrition you're on, how much you're training. So just remember that if you are paying for a coach, just listen to the one person. There's so many equations to be able to work out two plus two equals four, but making sure that it's aligned in the exact way is the only formula to be able to make that work. 
When trying to source a good coach, I say the term good because I've had such shit experiences with other coaches and I hear horror stories all the time. I think lately I've kind of turned a blind eye to it because it's, it just, it really makes me angry that there's so many people that do prey on younger girls who don't understand. And once you start using illegal substances as a younger woman, your body is going to get fucked up. And I'm not saying that because I'm threatened by you taking substances. I don't care. It's simply that your hormones, as soon as you start taking a hormone, is going to then have that follow-on effect and it's going to break other hormones. So unless you know what you're doing, I would definitely not be looking at touching other stuff. So just remember that a good coach wants your health number one as the priority, not winning a plastic trophy. So just be really clear with your intention of what you're after when you do decide to do fitness competitions, that it's not so much that you are wanting whatever costs to win, but you're wanting it for the right reasons. Now, looking for a coach can come in so many different ways, um, depending on whether you're a bikini girl looking for different divisions, uh, different federations. So uh, there's a lot of federations out there that don't allow you to compete in any other federation. So I am an IFBB pro. I am not even allowed to attend another event for any other federation. So if I do that, I lose my pro status. And that's something that's taken me seven years to earn. So I'm not going to put that at risk. So remember that if your coach is perhaps um, an IFBB pro or a different um, pro, that they're actually able to support you on the day as well. And does some, some questions that you can ask your coach or when you're looking for a coach could be, does it include aftercare? So like a reverse diet after your competition. And what sort of support does that look for? Uh, If you're vegan, are they able to support your beliefs? Are you wanting to say flexible diet? Um, Do you want to do keto? How are they going to get you to stage? And these are all questions that you're, it's your body, you're able to ask these before signing up with a coach. There's a lot of different philosophies when it comes to nutrition and um, some things work for different clients and it's really important that you have these discussions up front first because if you're not clear on your coach or you're not happy or feel supported, when you start out, you've only got really 20 weeks to get to stage absolute max. So if you start out with a coach you want to change halfway through, it's going to make it really hard, not only for yourself, but for your new coach to be able to pick up different um, philosophies of where you're currently at. And most coaches won't take you on if you've been with another coach and you're really close to um, getting on stage. Another big factor for me was cardio. (laughs) I went from doing two hours a day. So let's just put this into context. I, my coach at the time had me on 800 calories, which is bassa fish and green beans, two hours a day of cardio and one hour of weight training. I still remember her saying to me that on my morning of my comp, I got a special treat of three strawberries. Like that's the sort of coaches that are out there still, right? And so now 
cardio for me and leading up to, I'm going to talk about competition time, not now because it's a bit different now versus competition time. Leading up to competition, I did zero cardio. And when I say zero cardio, I did not step foot on a treadmill. I did not have any planned walks, runs, hit training. I didn't do F45. I didn't do any of the other cardiovascular ways. So, so many people try and come at me and say, but you were walking here. I'm like, yeah, I was walking. I didn't plan any other cardio. And the reason being for that is your nutrition actually controls your body fat and your weight training controls your muscle size and mass and shape. And when you throw cardio into the mix that's irregular, you can't track and monitor to be able to figure out what the body is going to do. So when you start putting in cardio, it's like a wild card, right? So you only use that wild card at the very end if you can't get a client into condition. So if their nutrition has gotten so low through dieting that you are like, now I'm going to make a call of health, I'm going to put in cardio. So if you've brought down their calories to a point where you're like, yeah, nah, I'm not pulling them any further in regards to pulling their food back, you would then have to increase cardio. So this is what I'm talking about in regards to what a coach will do. So if you go to a coach and they say to you straight off the bat, morning and night cardio, and we're going to start at 12 weeks out, where are you going to go when you're two weeks out from comp and you're not losing that last little bit of weight? So there's all these questions that you really need to think about of how that's actually going to go. And even if your coach does decide to put you on cardio in the last couple of weeks, you then have to reverse out of that cardio because if you stop doing it, you're going to gain weight. So like everything that goes down, it has to come back up again to be able to come back to a normal, healthy regulation. What we do with clients straight after a competition is that if we've had to bring their calories down or their fats down to a lower point to be able to get them onto stage, it is never done with the health at the detriment and always straight after competition, fats are always put up to a minimum of 40 grams based on the fact that that is what every single woman needs a minimum of to be able to even have optimal hormone function, skin function, and then we reverse diet up. So within those couple of weeks after comp, it is so, so important. Um, The other thing as well is coaching style. So I've, I've had a few, I've had about five coaches and I, whilst I seem like a hard ass, am not and would probably cry looking back at Nathan's approach to coaching if he wasn't my husband. He is the most straight down the line um, coach. He does not give you feedback. So like I was so lean and in really good nick and he'd be like, yeah, yeah, we're going to have to do something here. And I'd be like, what? And some of his other girls like Lenise, beautiful, beautiful little thing. She'll come in and she just wants him to be like, you've done well. And he just doesn't give it to her. And that's his coaching style. If you've done really well and you've won your pro card, you're going to get some praise, but only just. And there's other coaches out there that'll blow smoke up your ass and tell you you're going to win and you're amazing and you look so good. And if that's the the style of coach that you need, you need to make sure that you choose the right coach for you. And some people like different coaching styles and make sure that you know what coaching style works for you. Also, talk to previous clients because reoccurring clients are such a good um, measurable thing in regards to a coach. 
if somebody had a bad experience with a coach, they're not going to go back to them. And if somebody's always got the same client for five years and they're always competing, then I would definitely be more inclined to choose them and speak to previous clients. So that's everything kind of like in a nutshell to choosing a coach. Having tried every single, I'm not going to say every single, that's a very like egotistical thing to say, but having tried quite a few diets, including Bassa and green beans, I firsthand would say that flexible dieting and like the macro style changed the game for me when it came to training. I was able to eat the same food as my family. I was able to have chocolate. Even right up that week before I turned pro, I was still having like grilled out for dinner and all of the foods that I was eating with my family. And it allowed me the flexibility to still have a somewhat normal life while competing. Uh, My training was not as intense as what I was saying before in regards to the other coaching style of two hours a day of cardio, one hour a day of weights. I used the methodology in regards to increase your strength, therefore increase your muscle mass and therefore decrease your fat mass. It's a pretty simple formula and it works. So when you increase your strength, you increase your muscle mass and thus decrease your fat mass which is perfect for comps. If you're looking at what federation to choose, there's so many different factors that come into play here. And there's something like 17 federations currently in Australia. So there's plenty to choose from. And so some questions to ask yourself here could be like, what are your end goals? Uh, Do you want to compete frequently? Um, And if you do want to compete frequently, there's certain federations that I would definitely not advise doing because you're not going to be able to actually jump on stage a lot. Um, And like IFBB, for example, there's one or two shows a year. So there's not a whole lot of chance to jump on stage. And if that's what you like doing and that's why you're doing it, it might not be the right federation for you. You also do need to consider that whilst you're doing this for yourself and your own goals, that every federation has a different look. So make sure that it aligns with your look and your division. And so I am an IFBB bikini competitor and it's probably the same size as another federation's fitness. And so I'll just go through the scale of bikinis at the bottom. We're like down real low, not a lot of muscle. And then fitness and then figure and then physique and then bodybuilder. And so I'm IFBB bikini, but in another federation, I would be fitness. So a little bit more muscly. And so remembering what you look like and and actually asking people, what federation do you think suits my body the best, rather than trying to adapt to another federation's look, will give you a better result if that's what you're after. My first ever peak week, I, oh my God. Okay. My first ever peak week. So remember, I'm flying blind coming into this. 2012, I had just done this because I got free training and I hopped on stage and I had dehydrated. This is so bad. And people still do this now. I had dehydrated for two days, right? And leading up to that comp, at one of those days, I was having 10 litres of water and I was on my parents' yacht over at Port Lincoln and... 
I literally was having to jump in the water to do a wee like every second because I couldn't even hold it in to get 10 litres in. Now that is so unhealthy. And the reason that that whole um, philosophy was formed was because the original bodybuilders were using steroids and therefore what would happen is they would store water and hold on to water. Me as a tiny little natural bikini competitor was not storing water. And it just got rid of all of my sodium in my body and made me look like a tiny little string bean, which I guess worked on the day. However, since then, science has come a very long way and we actually need the water to shuttle the carbs to the muscle. And so if we're dehydrated, what you'll end up finding is that the muscle bellies actually seem flat. And you actually need that rounder, fuller look on stage. So there's so many different things in regards to peak week. Now, being on stage for dehydrating for two whole days, I jumped off stage on this elevated high that I had just won and Asada picked me up, right? And so Asada is the drug testing um, part of bodybuilding. And I got pulled into a room and my kids were outside waiting for me. And I hadn't drunk any water for two days. So when a side pick you up, what happens is they're not allowed to leave your side. So you're assigned two different people to come with you everywhere you go until you provide a drug test. So I spent the night of my competition until 1am in the toilet crying because I couldn't wee to be able to provide my drug sample because I was that dehydrated. And so we didn't even go out for dinner because everywhere was closed and I didn't get any of that reward because I literally had to provide this drug sample. So dehydrating myself for two days was the worst thing I could have done. Um, It's actually interesting in regard to the ASADA component because I've been drug tested nine times now um, and I'm always open for a little drug test. I kind of think it's a big like fuck you to people that um, say that I'm not natty. So I like that. But um, Asada's, it's funny because they, yeah, they have to stay with you. So it's always within our clients that tend to get drug tested and they're always shocked now when they're like, yeah, we can do it right now because every single one of our clients on stage have drunk water the entire day. And I would never dehydrate a, a client, bodybuilder or bikini comp, um, competitor to get onto stage. So such a date, like such a dated thing to do. Um, and yeah, such a dated thing to do. The big question that I get in regards to tanning for bodybuilding competitions. So back in the day, we used a thing called dream tan and it was like mud in a cup. You can't even wipe it onto the skin. You have to literally slap it on so that it absorbs into the skin. And you're not allowed to you're not allowed to have a shower afterwards because otherwise what happens is it seeps into the pores. You have to use baby oil to get it off. That's how gross it is. Uh, now the reason being behind it is because there's floodlighting and the floodlighting actually drowns you out on stage. So it's not because they like everybody to look black. It's just that you can't actually see the muscle definition on stage. And when you are on stage, it actually doesn't look as dark as in person. But in person, it is so embarrassing to go outside even in the week after the competition. It's really quite, yeah, quite hard. After doing so many comps, 
I now use a formulation called Jantana and it's just a spray tanning um, formulation and it's so much easier than the Dream Tan. Uh, but I still believe that a lot of the bodybuilders do use the um, Dream Tan on stage. The most horrific story in regards to tanning was I went overseas and I was competing and it was run by a whole bunch of um, Russians and I was over there on my own and I had massive social anxiety at the time. So it was a massive effort for me to even get there. And I walked in, Nathan was at home with the kids and I walked in and my spray tanning. So what they do is they literally just line up booths. So there's all these IFBB pro bikini girls naked in a room and the tanners were big Russian men. And I was like, oh, can I please have a female? And they're like, no, 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 there's no, well, they didn't say no, no, no. They said, Gotten. And I was like, oh my God. And I had no other choice but to literally have my spray tan done by a bodybuilder. And it was horrific. I was just like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing this. But it was just what they did. So everyone went in and rotated around. Um, the other thing that really shocked me with competing, especially overseas, was the makeup. So when it comes to competition makeup, it's not like your usual glam look. Like you're not going out after a competition thinking that you look like a glamour. No one thinks you look like a glamour. It's the most dramatic, like such heavy, heavy makeup. And the reason being is that when you are on stage, you are looking down at the judges. And so they can't even see your facial features based on the fact that the floodlighting is on and you're so far away. And so what happens is that it's extra long lashes. It's really bright, um, whites in the corners of your eyes, like red lips, really, really, really dramatic makeup. You're going to fall off your chair when you hear how much I paid for makeup. But overseas, I paid 800 US dollars for my makeup and you have to Get your makeup, tan and hair by the sponsors. Otherwise, you're not allowed to compete. I'm going to go through like a whole cost thing at the end, but that was one huge factor and surprising factor to me. And what I ended up doing is I ended up just saying no and doing my own makeup myself because it was just so ridiculous towards the end. Um, and same, same with bikinis. So I was very fortunate to have bikini sponsors, um, but that was only the last few shows that I did. So before that, um, bikinis are anywhere between $2,000 to $4,000 and most girls will usually get a different bikini for every competition and every single time you check into an IFBB Pro Show or a qualifier, you have to have your bikinis measured. And so, so many girls got caught out when we went to our first Ohio show in um, Arnold Classic because a lot of the bikinis weren't big enough for an IFBB Pro stage. And so, they were more G-string shaped than they're allowed to be. And so, what they do is they actually measure your bum cheek with a ruler. And if it doesn't cover a quarter of your bum cheek, they're not allowed on stage. So, what we ended up doing was getting like glue. And this was horrific because imagine peeling this off and pulling them out of our bum cheeks and sticking them on our bums for measurements and then putting them back up because we didn't want to have to pay $2,000 for a new bikini. Um, same thing for the heels. So I, I don't actually, I don't actually know what this, why this is to be honest, but we wear stripper heels. 
I, I don't know. I don't know how my dad let me on stage, to be honest. Funnily enough, my dad's never come to a competition. My mum's been to every single one front row. Um, I believe it's to like elongate the legs because they're clear. And um, so like with IFBB, you're not allowed to have any crystals or anything on them. And that's so they don't take away from the physique. And the same thing was actually the case with bikinis. We weren't allowed to have crystals initially on them. They had to be only one colour and they were very stock standard. And that was so that they were being judged on the body alone and not so much like the heels and bikinis. However, there's so many federations out there now where you actually do get judged on your heels and bikinis. So yeah, different to federation to federation. Obviously jumping on stage you have to learn how to pose and what to expect and how to actually do the walk and quarter turns. Now in IFBB, we have quarter turns. So quarter turn to the right four times. And you ideally want your body to look the best it possibly can at every single one of those turns. And that's not something that you can just look into the mirror and do yourself. So having a posing coach is something that's really important. And investing in that is huge and making sure that you're able to be able to do your entire T-walk and quarter turns with your eyes closed will be the best thing that you can possibly do. Because when you're nervous, you're going to freak out and you're not going to know what to do. And you want to automatically just know your poses without even having to think about it. And so having a posing coach there, especially one that is experienced, but also can pull you up and be like, no, 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 do this, do that, do this is really important. When it comes to the costs, you are going to need to put aside between five to $10,000 to compete. Now, you may not believe me when I say that, but I'm going to break it down a little bit here um, and really think about it before you do do this because it's not something that is for the lighthearted and it is expensive. And I don't want you to think that you're embarking on this and going to walk away making more money than what you're spending. And even if you do have sponsors or free coaching and stuff, it is still expensive. So coaching, uh, a good coach will charge between $2,000 to $4,000 for a comp prep. And that includes like your weekly check-ins and your training programs and your peak week. But that is what you would be looking at spending. Bikinis range anywhere from $500 to $2,000. And even secondhand bikinis will start at about $200. Heels are between $200 to $300. And makeup, as I said before, depending on if you're doing that in Australia. So the Australian makeup and hair is $500 and overseas in America is $800. Um, you've got tanning costs, posing costs. So the posing is between $1,500 and $2,000. And then the entry fees, $300 to $600 for a federation, not mentioning flying, accommodation and everything else that goes into it as well. So kind of like in summary, it's an expensive sport with very little reward and you must truly love the entire process with every ounce of your soul. So there is no better feeling than like hard work and proving to yourself that you can actually do something that you never thought that you would be able to do. Um, And I would definitely do it over and over again if I could choose to do it again. Um, But I think the reason that I say that is not because of the shows that I've won. It's the lessons that I learned when I thought like I couldn't go any further. Um, It was never... It was never a fact of winning. It was never a fact trying to be better or be 
number one against other women. It was always the fact that I was trying to show myself that I could do something that I never thought I could do. And in the very beginning, it never even started out that I was ever going to be able to to do well in this competition. And as I progressed, I was like, I can't do this. And I still would get on stage and be like, I'm a mum of four competing against 21-year-olds. Like, are they blind? Someone's paid the judges. And I'd make up so many different scenarios in my head as to how I was doing so well. And it took a long time for it to actually build up my self-worth of being like, you're winning and there must be a reason behind it. So actually have a little bit of belief and knowing that you can do it. And those were some of the most defining moments of when I thought I couldn't do something um, and being able to actually do it. So I think you can do anything if you set your mind to it. Uh, Just remember your why and always stay true to yourself and your integrity. And remember that within the industry, people would definitely try and sway your beliefs or what you're actually there to do or what you're wanting um, out of it. But just remember always to make sure that you're doing it for the right reasons. So I hope that answered some of the questions when it comes to my own journey to becoming a fitness pro and IFBB pro. As always, I have a bookworm book for the week. Now, this one was actually sent to me and it's called Why Does He Do That? Um, I think this is a must read for every woman out there. And there's actually free PDF downloads if you're not in a position to be able to purchase this book online. And it's really, really, really valuable. Um, I can't yeah, express enough how valuable this book is. So it's really eye-opening. Now, if you want to get involved in our podcast, it is 0756496851. And we can continue the discussion over on the closed Facebook group, which is Flourish and Fulfilled and on Instagram as well. I would love to continue this topic a little bit further. And if you guys had any questions at all, please just leave them for me. I definitely want to support you within your own journeys and make sure that you're doing it for the right reasons. Bye, guys.